I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Tom had finally learned there are no miracles. There's no such thing as fate. Nothing is meant to be. He knew. He was sure of it now. Tom was... Sorry, um, I just left, uh, can I... One second. He was pretty sure. Keep the place covered. Somebody will be around in a few minutes to give you a hand. That's all. What a break. He's inside, we're out. What do we do now, call the cops? We're going after him. Yeah, sure. And tomorrow we crack what knocks. Maybe Sutro's right, boss. Maybe we ought to tip off the cops. I said we're going after him. Mac. Yeah? Get down to 3rd Street. Call me when you know the score. At the corner of 3rd and Broadway in downtown Los Angeles sits a 78,000-square-foot brick behemoth called the Bradbury Building. From the street, the Bradbury doesn't really look like much. In fact, with its heavy brown sandstone brick facade, the squat structure is even a little oppressive, and some might even say depressive, particularly in its current incarnation as home to a Subway sandwich shop, Sprint cellular store, and many other less-than-inspiring retailers. And even the Bradbury's location fails to inspire. Though downtown L.A. has been experiencing a renaissance over the last 15 years, the Bradbury borders the city's unrelenting Skid Row, which seems to keep the area in a state of constant flux, awash in a sea of misfortune. But the neighborhood and the Bradbury's exterior are hardly the point. Far from it. The Bradbury waits to cast its spell upon entry. Stepping off the drab downtown streets, you enter through the arched entry at 304 South Broadway into a dark, low-ceilinged foyer ensconced in cathedral-like silence. Though your first inclination might be to back away slowly for fear of having intruded on an office building you have no business being in, 
A golden hue, perhaps a hundred feet in the distance, beckons you. If you're willing to entertain your more curious nature and boldly stride forward, you'll be richly rewarded. The low ceilings give way to one of the most dramatic atriums in architecture. Flooded with golden Californian sunlight from the glass ceiling over 75 feet above, the yellow brick interior seems to ingest the rays and slowly release them, enveloping any visitor in a warm embrace. Encircling the atrium are immaculate black steel staircases working their way gently up toward the sky. Any sound that emanates from the tiled floor reverberates softly and then is lost in the ether. It is, to use a well-worn cliche that nonetheless remains apt, magical. The magic of the Bradbury Building is well documented and has cast its spell on so many that it's often referred to as the undisputed architectural superstar of Hollywood, having appeared in over 20 films, countless television episodes, and served as the backdrop to some of the most important works of American literature to date. This building has served as muse for makers from every medium. And while the Bradbury's physical qualities are intrinsically tied to every aspect of its being, Today, we want to explore its mystical, otherworldly beginnings and see if the Bradbury can shine its glowing light on the abstract qualities and the fleeting nature of creativity itself. Welcome to Clever Confidential, where we dig into the lesser told stories of the darker side of design. The shadowy, sometimes sordid tales hiding under a glossy top coat of respectable legacy. This is Episode 2. Supernatural by Design, The Unlikely Beginnings of the Bradbury Building. I'm Amy Devers, and with me today, as always, is my partner in crime, writer and editor Andrew Wagner, here to help me tell the story of the infinitely mysterious and fascinating Bradbury Building. The Bradbury Building in Los Angeles has had such a huge impact on my life. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I was born in Connecticut. And I was living there until I was nine. And then in around 1982, my family was going to pick up and move to California. I had never been to California before. I didn't know anything about California. Now, at the same time that this was happening, the movie Blade Runner came out. And I mean, it was a very uh, popular movie, talked about a ton. And in Blade Runner is this incredible building. And if you've seen the original Blade Runner, you know, it's the building where the toy maker lives. And that is the Bradbury building. It really sets the tone for the movie and it, it casts this sort of dark, uh, menacing light over everything that's happening in the film. It wasn't until I was probably in my 20s that I got to go down to LA and actually see this building in person. And the Bradbury building does not disappoint. You've been digging into the origin story, right? Yes. Well, it, the building takes its name from its founder, Lewis Bradbury. And now Lewis Bradbury was an American, but he had gone down to Mexico to make his fortune in the silver mines. And he did. He, he did a, a remarkably well in Mexico. And he also met his wife, Simona, in Mexico. But his dream was to come back to the United States, and he was drawn to Los Angeles. Now, I think he's drawn to Los Angeles because it, it's this place that's not really settled. Um, 
it's kind of dirty. It's it's been called lawless at this point, you know, from maybe 1850 to 1890. It's really this wild west town. But what that means is there's a lot of opportunity. Do we know anything about Bradbury? Was he liked and revered for being honorable and having integrity? If we were to be honest with ourselves, I'm sure there was a big land grab, big silver grab in Mexico. I'm sure that was not all above board. But as we know Bradbury through writings and through history, we know him as an upstanding citizen. He people respect him in order to make his mark. He's going to build this building with his name on him. And so to do that, you, you need a big architect. You need someone with a name. You need someone who understands the city and the place. And he finds that in an architect named Sumner Hunt. And this seems to be a great choice because Sumner Hunt has not only a great first name, but also a great reputation. As, what, what, what does his first name have to do with it? I just like his first name, Sumner. I think that's a pretty nice name. Need to bring that I one feel back. Like it's really subjective. That doesn't have anything to do with historical. This is true. Okay, this is true. You caught me. I thought I could slip it. No. <laughs> okay. So he, he Hunt and Bradbury get together. Seems like it's going to be a great relationship. It seems like we should be off to. A very typical story, but something changes when Sumner Hunt introduces the plans and the design to Lewis Bradbury. What changes? Well, Lewis Bradbury says, you know, I'm not impressed. Not only am I not impressed, I'm, I'm really disappointed. So you think Hunt didn't, he didn't reach for the stars in the way Bradbury was hoping? Perhaps Bradbury. He says to himself, oh, well, I've hired this great architect. I don't need, I'm not going to bother him. I'm just going to let him do his work. It's, maybe they don't have enough conversations between each other to really know what Bradbury is looking for. Because uh, for whatever reason, it's not what he's looking for at all. So there's this young 32-year-old draftsman named George Wyman in Sumner Hunt's office. And Lewis Bradbury has gotten to know George Wyman through this process, and he's struck up a relationship with him. Now, George Wyman, for his part, is, uh, I think he's very happy to be able to work for Sumner Hunt. Um, he's kind of a quiet guy. He's just doing his own thing. He's doing his drawings. But what happens is Bradbury decides that he wants to offer this commission to George Wyman. Just out of the blue, or they had had some interaction? Uh, they had had interaction, but it was definitely out of the blue. I think what he sees in George Wyman is he, he sees someone he really likes. He sees someone, he's seen George Wyman's drawings around, and George Wyman has, is producing these kind of fantastical, futuristic drawings that are that are really that really attract Bradbury and get Bradbury very interested in him. He's sort of the kooky draftsman in the office with the wild ideas and Bradbury takes a look around and says, "Him. I want yes. him to do my building." Yes. Again, to place this in proper context, we're talking about 1891. I think if we if we were jumped 2020, the that 32-year-old without a doubt would say, "Hey, 
definitely, I'll take this job. No problem. But back then, it was just really not something you did. And Wyman has a lot of, he has a lot of questions about it. He doesn't know if he should do this. But he heads home that night and he sits down with his wife named Belle. And Belle suggests they consult a very untraditional source for advice. Wyman's dead brother, Mark. Dead. Dead. Dead brother, Mark. Dead brother, Mark, who had died eight years previous when he was 12 years old. In the dusty but rapidly developing Los Angeles of the late 1800s, spiritualism was exceedingly popular. Rooted in the core tenet that the dead not only have the ability, but the desire to communicate with the living, this nascent quasi-religion was the perfect antidote to an often lawless land where death and destruction were simply just a part of everyday life. To spiritualists, the dead aren't really dead. Rather, they exist in a spirit world where they continue to grow and evolve infinitely. Because of their continued evolution, spirits are thought to be more advanced than humans and therefore are able to provide useful and insightful knowledge about moral and ethical issues, as well as questions about God. During the 1890s, when Wyman's Dilemma arose, it was said that spiritualism had close to 8 million followers, two of whom were George and Belle Wyman. At the time, the best way to communicate with the dead was the Ouija board's predecessor, the planchette. In French, planchette means little plank, and that's precisely what they are. Often heart-shaped, the planchette is a small wooden device featuring two wheeled casters at the wide ends and a pencil-holding apparatus at the point. While the Ouija board features a looking glass toward the tip of the heart, allowing the users to view individual letters or phrases to decipher messages from the spirit world, the planchette utilizes what is referred to as automatic writing. Also known as psychography, automatic writing allows the user to actually write messages without consciously writing. The suggestion being, of course, that the words are being channeled from a spiritual or supernatural source. So the couple, they pulled out their planchette and get ready to conjure him and explain the situation to him. They feel like they've got the presence in the room. And George says, or we can assume he says something to the effect of, Mark, I have been asked by Lewis Bradbury. You didn't say it in that voice. <laughs> <You mentioned. laughs> to take over the design of a new <laughs> third and Broadway in Los Angeles. This guy, Lewis Bradbury, he's not happy with Sumner Hunt's design, and he asked me to do it. Mark, tell me, we need your guidance. So that's what happens. They're looking for an answer. They don't want to make the decision. They want someone else to make the decision for them. Okay, so I think I know the rest of this story, because this is where it gets kind of crazy. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I do not believe he spoke to his brother in that <laughs> <laughs> the planchette it started to scrawl out a message first writing um george wyman and then take the bradbury building and you will be and then the end of the message was indecipherable huh. it was like a scrawl of okay, etchings right. that ap appeared to make no sense take the bradbury building and you will be 
what? What was that? And then they figured it out. Yeah. Paul slowly turned the piece of paper around and the planchette had been writing upside down. And so it said, take the Bradbury building and you will be successful. But successful was was upside down. And so, uh, as you can imagine, that's a pretty, pretty clear, decisive directive. They decided they would take the project. Wyman takes the project and he really jumps into the design of the Bradbury building full force. I think this is so interesting, this idea that he didn't want to have to make the decision. Of course, he wanted to take the project. Who wouldn't want to take that project? You know, some sort of otherworldly validation, I guess. He doesn't want to be the guy to be like, Sumner, screw you, man. Uh, But he could say, well, we contacted Mark from beyond the grave. And Mark said I should take it. And I can't. uh, How do I turn that down? And probably you get people saying, yeah, I, I don't know how you turn that down. When it's delivered to you from the spirit world, it's sort of understood that they are all knowing and they know what's best. So in some way, Sumner might even think, well, there's no arguing with that. Right. They have this macro view of our lives. Right. Uh, I guess we have to defer. At this time, he had been reading Edward Bellamy's science fiction masterpiece, which is called Looking Backward, published in 1886. And it was really kind of all the rage. Um, everybody's reading it, but Wyman really sort of took it to heart and he really was drawn to this. And he was particularly taken with this one passage in which Bellamy describes a building from the year 2000, which in 1891 seems to be an almost impossible to imagine future. But it reads, it was the first interior of a 20th century public building that I had ever beheld. And the spectacle naturally impressed me deeply. I was in a vast hall of light, received not alone from the windows on all sides, but from the dome, the point of which was a hundred feet above. Beneath it, in the center of the hall, a magnificent fountain played, cooling the atmosphere to a delicious freshness with its spray. The walls and ceilings were frescoed in mellow tints, calculated to soften without absorbing the light which flooded the interior. Around the fountain was a space occupied with chairs and sofas on which many persons were seated conversing. Now, reading that, it's almost as if you're reading an expertly crafted architectural brief that Wyman was able to execute on to a T. So aside from the fountain, it's really almost as if Bellamy had been writing about the Bradbury building. And that that really, to this day, remains one of the most endearing qualities of the Bradbury. It's truly timeless. It feels like it still, if you walk in in 2020, it feels like you could be transported from the distant future, or it could be a reflection of of the distant past. And it could be thoroughly contemporary, modern structure, or it could be uh, an ancient one. I always think of the Bradbury as this this shapeshifter. And it kind of takes on whatever form its individual users choose to see it in. That's really evidenced by its many, many, many star roles that it's taken on throughout the years in Blade Runner as a decrepit masterpiece buried in darkness. And it's engulfed in this horrible future world of Los Angeles. In 500 Days of Summer, 
that Bradbury is a light and whimsical presence. And in Lethal Weapon 4, yes, it's in Lethal Weapon 4 too, it serves as a tough, no-nonsense backdrop to a sequel that probably should have never happened. Hey, more subjectivity. (laughs) (laughs) The building, it's also been in tons of TV episodes, Perry Mason, CSI New York, to fame. Mission Impossible, Quantum Leap, the list goes on and on. It's been in, it's been in all these music videos. Uh, Janet Jackson, Heart, Genesis, the Pointer Sisters, and even Tony, Tony, Tony's Let's Get Down. Oh my God, you get points for that <laughs> reference. So how did George Wyman do this? George Wyman, he's this 32-year-old architectural draftsman. He has no architectural credits to his name. So how does he manage to create one of the most remarkable buildings in the United States, if not the world. How was Wyman, despite completing the Bradbury building, going on to obtain his architectural license after that? And he went on to design all these other buildings, most of which have now been torn down, never go on to do anything of particular notice after the Bradbury building. It was almost like he threw all of his creative energy into this one building and it took everything out of him. You always hear, you hear a lot about it in music, right? Like the one hit wonder where they make some amazing music and then they're just gone. They vanished. It, it was everything they had. And, and it really seems like that could have been an architectural instance of it. But you could also say, was it even more nefarious? Did, is it possible that Wyman didn't even design the building? His dead brother, Mark, did. <laughs> I mean, that's a possibility. Dead brother, Mark, possible. Or was it Sumner Hunt? And Wyman simply took the credit for it. There's a lot of questions that surround, surround this. And because of its supernatural beginnings, it starts to add this other layer of what's going on with this building. Or maybe Bradbury's more of an architect than we thought. I mean, maybe he liked Wyman because he was young and pliable and Bradbury could impose his ideas without any pushback. He's clearly a man of a bit of ego if he wants to name a whole city block um, and do this big building and really, you know, put his name on downtown Los Angeles. So, I mean, perhaps Bradbury had more to do with it than, than usual. What you bring up there that's so fascinating, and it doesn't get enough attention, is really uh, an architect without a great client is really nothing. You know, you have to have um, you have to have a client that's going to push you and that's going to uh, help you produce this work and, and have share similar visions and their partnership. I'm sure had to have been something very special that is a once in a lifetime thing and maybe that's why we're seeing this once in a lifetime building well i mean i mean it's possible bradbury died uh before the building opened so he wouldn't have been around to collaborate on future buildings which is maybe why they weren't as noteworthy that's the, the interesting exciting thing about the bradbury is we have a lot of questions and we don't have a lot of answers 
To help us get to the bottom of this architectural mystery, we've enlisted the help of Kim Cooper and Richard Shave, founders of Los Angeles true crime and literary tour company Esoturic. These two have built long careers based on their knowledge of L.A. and their love of the Bradbury Building is infectious. After recently experiencing their Bradbury Building webinar, in which they introduced their audience, including us, to the wonders of this famous building, we knew we had to get in touch and ask them to help bring some clarity to the story. Kim Cooper in Los Angeles, California, and I tell the stories of LA on esoteric tours and now on webinars. I am Richard Shave. I am Kim Cooper's husband, hopelessly devoted to her, and both she and I own and operate Esoteric, which is both a real-life tour venture and a virtual one now in the midst of the pandemic. And we happily reside in Los Angeles, California, in the 14th Council District of Los Angeles. Can you tell us a little bit about your fascination with the Bradbury Building and why you've been so attracted to it over the years? Well, it is the best building. You know, I mean, there's, <laughs> now, listen, there, there, there's a lot of landmarks that are amazing and you walk into them and people gasp. But the Bradbury is different. It's special. It is so intimate. It is so well kept. The Bradbury, for me, is really the emotional half acre of Los Angeles. I know that I'm not supposed to use that expression, emotional half acre, but that, that's, that's the quickest way to sum up how I feel when I, when I think about Los Angeles, when I think about, as, as my consciousness, just I, as, as, I, as I move through this city in time, the Bradbury is a big part of that space in my mind. But I have a strong connection with the building because I always loved it. It is the best building. <laughs> it definitely is. You know, I think uh, for me, what is so interesting about it is uh, the way you view it on the street. You know, from the street level, it, it really isn't much at all. Um, and it, to me, just thinking about it, you know, it kind of feels very cinematic. Uh, at that point, it's almost like it has a curtain drawn in front of it and you have to lift the curtain, walk through the door. And that's when there's this great reveal. Now, you're, you're right. But I think that it, it, for people who have been in the, the Midwest or the East Coast, it's a very familiar type of building, a, a heavy, stodgy, red Richardsonian Romanesque business block. We don't have a lot of those in Los Angeles anymore. Mm. So it, it actually was a little bit on the unique side, but rather neutral. And it's true. When you walk inside, the doors are not large. The, the windows are few. And so you really have to make the effort to go in. That was something that a lot of people did through the history of Los Angeles. It was where most of the major lawyers, well, many of the major lawyers had their offices early on. There were physicians that you could see there. There were actually mediums who occasionally would have seances really? inside. Occasionally, there was a there was a, a medical office that produced uh, radioactive treatments, which I can wow. walk around at some point with a, <laughs> with a Geiger counter and see if I can find what office that was. And <laughs> then in, by the 1950s, it was a lot of fabric concerns. So there were Shmata people coming and going. There was a, a Mexican travel agency inside. 
I mean, there was an Esperanto study group. There were just many reasons for people to come in and out. So it wasn't like the best kept secret in LA. There were many reasons people might wander in, but it was something that always just made people happy. And, and even in the earliest days when it opened, people recognized that it was a very special interior. It's a place where you're not going to yell and be a, a, a big, uh, noisy bub. It, I think respect is, is just natural when you're in that environment. It, it's not a place to be, to have your outside voice on. The time we spend with good architects, talking to them about the preservation of Los Angeles spaces, they will tell you the very descriptions you both have just given about space that is the interior atrium of the Bradbury, that is the very definition of good architecture. That Agreed. architects, um, when, when they're amongst themselves and they're not writing monographs like learning from Las Vegas or whatever <laughs> monographs get produced today out of the Yale School of Architecture, when, <laughs> when their hair is down and they're amongst themselves, they all agree that the way you feel in the Bradbury is what good architecture is that that's what that's what that's what it means to have designed a building well is you feel that way hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. 
I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. My introduction to the Bradbury was through the eyes of Hollywood and Blade Runner used it significantly. And, but again, it, in that, the way they use it there, it's so dark and menacing, but it's kind of the opposite of that. And I love this idea that these uh, different filmmakers and different people see it for such different, radically different things. Well, I think to sort of, to diffuse the, the the myth of the Bradbury building and and Blade Runner. Uh, mm-hmm. Blade Runner is one of my favorite films of all time and defined my adolescence. Uh, what what we found out only just a, a couple of years ago by befriending the McKelvey family who owned the building at the time that they they let them film film the final sequence of Blade Runner there. What we only learned recently is that they were just really happy to film on the Bradbury because. It had been red tagged and they desperately, the McKelvey family desperately needed money. And the dad who had, who had the lease in the building knew that they could just flood the building with water and it would be okay because it was wow. so well built. And so, so while they wow. were filming, while they were filming Blade Runner, um, Terry's, uh, son who was in his, his late teens and, and, and was about to start rehab, rehabilitating the building, a seismic, seismically retrofitting it. 
called him hysterically and said, Dad, there's just there's water pouring down from every single floor through the central atrium. Oh my God, they're going to ruin the building. And his dad just said, Paul, it's fine. They're, it's going to all, it's all, they're, they're going to be, I promise you, it's, they're going to leave and everything will be fine. And, and the check said, is going right. to clear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the, and the check cleared and the crew left and the, and the crew cleaned up and lo and behold, everything was fine. What's your favorite film that has been set there? Well, we're very emotionally attached to the film M for a, a number of reasons. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful use of the space. It's a very frightening scene. And this involves... It's a remake of a German film uh, that was shot largely up on Bunker Hill in the early 50s. You're talking about M1951, 51. produced by Seymour and Harold Nebensall, which is a remake of Seymour's 1931 film M, which was shot in Berlin right before the Nebensalls fled after Kristallnacht. With and Peter yes, Lorre as, yes. the, as the, the murderer. So the right, so this this remake that you're talking about is 1951, and it is set on Bunker Hill, which the Bradbury Building sits at the foot of. And they chose to use the Bradbury Building, and at the time that they shot in the Bradbury Building as the place where the killer, the the murderer of little children, has taken his latest victim, and she's alive, and he wants to do terrible things to her before he kills her, and he's being chased by all of the members of the underground because he has brought too much attention onto the criminal underclass, so they have to take him out before the police do. Uh, he is in a building which has clearly come down in the world. It is no longer the place where all of the lawyers have their offices. It is now a fabric concern. So he's in this little back corner with this frightened little child surrounded by freaky mannequins and bits of cloth and bolts of cloth and large spools of string. And you really get a sense of what the building was like. And then just all these maniacal criminals come in and try to draw him to ground. It's a wonderful scene. It's, it's really emotional. There's some beautiful shots of the elevators. Kim, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Bradbury himself and why he, what were, were the conditions of him wanting to build this building in the first place? Lewis Leonard Bradbury, is, uh, he's from Maine. He's born in 1823. We don't know a lot about his early life, but by the time he was in his early 40s, he had a concern, a, a partial ownership of these very powerful silver mines in Rosario, Mexico, just south of Mazatlan, that were known as the Tahoe Mines. And over the course of less than a decade, he managed to build an enormous amount of wealth. And while he was there, he married a local woman named Simona Martinez. And towards the end of the 1860s, he had some financial reversals because the Spanish colonial laws that had allowed people to come from America and extract enormous wealth from Mexico were contributing to a great deal of inequality and unrest. And so it was becoming obvious that the government might seize things that were owned by foreigners. And so Bradbury began to think about perhaps leaving Mexico, cashing out. He sold his interest in the mine to his wife for a nominal sum, and that was probably for security reasons because she was a Mexican national. And in 1880, the family moved to California and essentially retired on their wealth. They um, established homes in Oakland and Los Angeles, as all great incoming Californians did in the 1880s. He acquired one of the old ranchos. He bought the rancho Azusa de Duarte, which is now the towns of Duarte, 
and Bradbury, named for him, which is the richest zip code in Southern California, the last I checked, and uh, actually has more bears than people. And then, of course, they had to buy a grand house at the top of Bunker Hill. So they bought a 35-room mansion designed by the Newsom brothers and started thinking about doing something in downtown development. So Los Angeles at the time was developing south from the plaza, and Broadway Street had just been renamed from Fort, and people were looking at Broadway as being, being a good business street. And he looked at this rather large block at the corner of 3rd and Broadway, 120 by 185 feet, uh, that was just occupied by what at the time was a pretty modern drugstore. And he purchased it. Um, he paid, I believe, $100,000 in 1890 for this corner, which was a not inconsiderable sum. And that's around the time that he hired Sumner Hunt, who was one of the established architects of the rather young city, to talk about building a Bradbury block, something that would make him immortal in Los Angeles. So Sumner Hunt was his collaborator from the get-go on this. Well, we don't know a lot about the working relationship, but he is the okay. architect of, of record at the beginning. He's the, he's the office that Bradbury went to. He chose him as his architect, and they began talking about what could happen at this lot. And uh, Sumner Hunt began pulling permits. The project was moving pretty quickly. The, the Bradbury family actually went to Europe to do the grand tour and probably to get some I architectural ideas. And when they came back, work began. The intent was to build something very special. And that's what they set out to do. It, it had a pretty serious budget to start with. They paid $100,000 for the land, and the building itself was, such, was budgeted for 175000 It ended up being half a million. What happens next? So we know that uh, Louis Bradbury hires Sumner Hunt's office to design the business block at some point in 1891, and the work commences in the fall. And on December 15th of 1891, Hunt's office pulls a general building permit. And on March 9th of 1892, the foundation permits are pulled. But at some point in that period, Wyman becomes the primary architect. And he was working, as best we know, in Hunt's office. And he may well have been the main interface between the Bradbury family and the project. We, we just don't know for sure. But something about Wyman connected with the Bradburys because a decision was made by Lewis to change his architect. And he asked Wyman to take over. But on July 15th, 1892, Lewis Bradbury died. He was 69. He was um, 22 years older than Simona. And that left the project in the lurch because it had begun. They had permits pulled. It spent a significant amount of money already. And Lewis was gone. And Simona chose to continue the project and to continue the project with the young architect who, who Lewis had selected as the person he was going to give the chance to build this to. Can you tell us what you know about how Charles Wyman decides to, um, to take on the project? Well, the story goes that um, there was a meeting about the project that was held at Hunt's office, and Louis Bradbury informed Sumner Hunt that he no longer wished to work with him as the architect. And he also made it known that he wanted George Wyman, who was a young associate in the firm, to take on the project. It is said that one of the reasons that Bradbury was interested in Wyman is that Wyman had been doing some fantastical sketches that he had seen that were based on a science fiction book called Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy that had been recently published, which speculated about what the shopping centers of the future would look like. 
and they would be these vast halls of light with just really extraordinary walls and a sense of color and space and sound and time. Very, very remarkable spaces. And this appealed to Bradbury. And so he wanted to give this young man an opportunity. But the problem, of course, was he was working for Hunt. The project had fallen into his lap simply because he was in Hunt's office. So there was a certain amount of ethical awkwardness. And also, it was probably one of the most financially remunerative projects that was going to come along in either of their lifetimes as architects. So it's not the kind of thing you jump into. So the story goes, and this is passed on through Wyman's daughters, who remembered it in the 1950s, that uh, George Wyman sat down with his wife on a Saturday night and chose to channel the dead and speak specifically to his dead brother, Mark, who had died at the age of 12 about eight years previous, and ask Mark, because of course the dead are all knowing, what he should do. And mm, they had a planchette between their hands, and energies transmit through micro-movements of the muscles and channeling spirits from beyond. And the planchette begins to roll around on the paper, the pencil begins to scrawl, and it begins to write words in a very childlike script. Take Bradbury, you will be, and then absolute gibberish. But take Bradbury, you will be. That's a bit of a message from beyond. And it was only when someone stood up and happened to look at the piece of writing upside down, they noticed that the gibberish was the word successful, written in very loopy script, upside down. And with that message from beyond, from Mark, they chose to move forward, and uh, George told Mr. Bradbury, yes, I will do it. And I'm sure he had a serious conversation with Sumner Hunt before he did so. Because Whoa. clearly, the relationship between the two architects remained cordial, and they were working together just a few years later. Well, they worked on buildings again together. They, they sat on this um, American Institute of Architects board. You know, they, they were not sworn enemies. This worked out. Is this common or uncommon to consult the dead? Uh, for answers. It's super common to consult the dead for answers. Is that a, a product of the time period? Mortality was much higher. There were, every family had loved ones who they missed every day. So the idea that you could perhaps go and see a medium and they could talk to your loved one for you, or you could even do it at home with the planchettes and eventually with more organized printed devices like a, a Ouija board. just very appealing. Fascinating. In April of 1953, Esther McCoy, a wonderful L.A. architecture writer, um, first told the planchette story in uh, Arts and Architecture magazine. She wrote a really lovely piece, A Vast Hall of Light, the Bradbury Building. And her sources include um, the newspapers of the time and, and the journals and uh, doing you know research in the building, of course. But she also sought out both of George Wyman's daughters. Carrie Wyman, who was born in 1883 in Ohio, and Louise, who was born in 1885, also in Ohio. And she sought out Carrie's son, Forrest J. Ackerman. And all of them repeated the story that had come from George. And obviously, uh, the girls were you know, about 10 years old when this happened. So it, it, it happened in the household when they were there. That they had actually asked the dead brother for permission, for guidance, because uh, George Wyman was a little concerned about moving forward with what was, you know, not just a potentially awkward uh, 
transfer of power within the office from his boss, Sumner Hunt, to himself, but also, you know, a very ambitious architectural project, which would be by far the largest he ever took on. And what the, the girl said and what Forey said that his grandfather had told him was all the same, that this planchette message had come and they had taken it as a sign from beyond to move forward. And that George Wyman had indeed taken the commission and indeed had been successful. So I obviously it was a very well-known story and the Bradbury building is a wonderful building. So in the 1990s, when I started going up to Forestry Ackerman's house in Los Feliz Hills, I was one of a number of people who on a Saturday would call the phone number Moon Fan. (laughs) And uh, the answering machine would say, Hello, science fiction fans. Forrest J. Ackerman is in attendance and you can come to his house in California. <laughs> wow. At 10, 10 a.m. on Saturday and, and, and be received. Or, you know, if he was off doing a convention, the, the phone would say that you couldn't come. And people would show up at the gate at a certain set time and he would open the door. And he was such a lovely man. And he would just welcome you into his living room of his massive house on the hills that was filled with weird science fiction memorabilia and books and magazines and drawings and movie sets and rotting models from animatronic films. And and he would just answer questions and show you anything you wanted to see. Of course, people were stealing him blind, I'm pretty sure. It was, it was, it made me anxious as an archivist and historian, but I couldn't resist. And then after people were done asking him about science fiction, I would always ask him to tell the story of the planchette and his grandfather, and he would bring out a little framed image of the message. Wow. It is the great tragedy that his collection was never taken up by the city of Los Angeles. He offered it. He offered it to a number of civic and and institutional outlets, places that could have taken his entire collection. No one wanted to. And ultimately, to support himself as he got older, after his wife was uh, killed in Italy, he had to sell things. And there were a number of auctions while he was alive. And then there was a final auction posthumously. And of course, I checked all of the auction records and this planchette message never showed up. So either someone picked it up from a file in the collection at some point during those many moon fan visits or it's down at the bottom of a dump. And honestly, I think it's okay either way. Because mm. the, the, the message is real and it still lives in our imaginations. It's, it was always realer in imagination than in reality. I'm wow. so fascinated by why would Mark, the dead brother, write successful upside down? Spirits are tricksters. I... I think that if you just look at the history of seances, spirits, these elementals, whatever you want to call them, they're they're there to mess with people. You know, a, a seance is not um, a warm, fuzzy experience most of the time. There's shaking and grabbing and foul smells and loud explosions. It's, it's meant to be disconcerting, so I, I don't think it's supposed to be easy. And and this, I think, is a, a, a classic example of that. It certainly lends a little bit of credence to the whole idea that they were actually communicating with the dead, because if it was just the two of them with their hands, it would be almost impossible to coordinate writing successful upside down together. Well, actually, um, people 
do research this thing, which is called the idiomotor effect, which is this unconscious micromuscular movements that result in discernible effects like writing. And it's usually assumed that one person is controlling it. And it's such a gentle, subtle motion that the other people at the table, the other people who may have their hands, aren't aware that one person is unconsciously controlling it, including the person who's unconsciously controlling it. Mm -hmm, So I don't mm -hmm. think it is totally unlikely that George Wyman is an architect, someone who imagined space in his brain as his trade, as his life's work, would be unable to write upside down. We know that Paul R. Williams could write upside down. But it's also just as possible, I guess, that some being was coming through them and sending the message. The point was he needed a little convincing. He needed to be pushed and this did it. Whether mm-hmm. he did it to himself or or his brother did it or someone in the vast scheme of the universe pretending to be his brother that wanted the Bradbury to exist did it. Amy and I uh, have been interested in this story because, again, obviously it's the best building in the world. <laughs> and, it me- <laughs> and, and it means so much to so many people. It's particularly interesting that even though Wyman went on to be an important part of uh, the Los Angeles architecture scene. He didn't do much of note after that. So I don't know how else to say this, except you're incorrect about George Wyman not producing other significant commercial structures. We, We talked about this a little earlier about how do we understand the Bradbury family's relationship to Wyman and the sort of architecture they're interested in. So Louis Bradbury dies. Uh, his widow, Simona, takes over, and she then almost immediately commissions George Wyman to build the Tahoe building at First and Broadway, which is a, I think it's an eight-story. It's it's a very significant building. It's It's much larger than the Bradbury building. It is a major commercial structure in the Civic Center, which by the turn of the century, First and Broadway, is the is is the, the commercial core of Los Angeles. So I just I, I think that that Wyman's relationship with the family from the beginning is so strong that after Lewis dies, Simona builds the Tahoe Building, which is named after her the town where she was born in Mexico. She has George Wyman design it, and Wyman will come back to the Bradbury Building and modernizes the commercial spaces, the facades of the ground floor commercial spaces. Uh, at the estate's request. So I think that that if you really want to start to understand Sumner Hunt and George Wyman, everything we've talked about helps that because I think George Wyman is this incredibly sensitive, gifted architect that connects with the client, with Simona, at a very emotional level. And it is a very iconic cinematic relationship like almost an Ayn Rand fountainhead relationship between client and architect. And if you look at Sumner Hunt, who Wyman continues to work with, Sumner Hunt is the classic American commercial architect. He's the money guy. Every morning, Monday through Thursday, he's at rotary breakfasts. He's at luncheons, professional luncheons. He's on the golf course every Saturday and Sunday. He is raising, he's connecting with the people that are going to write $100,000 checks for his firm to commission the next 
biggest building in 1910, in 1920. And Wyman continues to work, but he works with his clients on a really one-to-one basis, whereas Sumner Hunts just, boom, got that commission on to the next. Let's just keep hitting the milestones, keep getting the checks and cashing them. Whereas Wyman works methodically one project at a time. I, I think that what's extraordinary about the Bradbury building and that never happened again, lightning strikes, was an enormous fortune was expended. Money was mm. absolutely no object. And before he died, Lewis Bradbury wanted this building to have all mod cons, as he say, to be electrical and to have telephones in every room and have these wonderful bathrooms and, and just be a very grand perfect space where you would walk in and say, this is the most modern office block in the city. Of course, I'm going to have my offices here. Simona continued that and was very, very careful with all of the finishes that were used. So everything was just exquisite. In every opportunity that they had to make things better, they did. And they spent a lot of money on importing this extremely beautiful wrought iron from, from Chicago. It was installed by Llewellyn, who are local, but the work was done in Chicago because the quality of work was, was higher there. It, it, it was not a scrimpy sort of building. So when he turns to do these little residential commissions, I'm sure that he was spending significantly less. They didn't make it into the newspaper. They weren't remarkable, but I'm sure he gave them his all just the way that he had for Simona Bradbury because he, he was a real architect. He wanted to create spaces that would last and that would make you walk inside and feel like you were at home. I don't think that it would have been lost on Simona that the young architect who she, who her husband had selected, who she chose to continue working with, was tuned in to his rather recently departed brother. I think that they probably shared something which was a sense of loss and a sense that the people who they loved were gone and that they were still here and doing the best they could with what they had. At the turn of the last century, I believe the phrase was lifting the veil. You know, a, a lot of people really consciously lived with the notion that that there's a permeable membrane between what we all agree on as reality and this other world of this higher dimension. But it's not glass, it's not steel, it's this permeable membrane, this veil. And I think people were much more comfortable moving back and forth and and sort of not really having a clear sense of what we say is objective reality and what they know to exist in their minds and perhaps we would say in a higher dimension today because it's hard to articulate mm-hmm. in the four dimensions we, we exist in and we all agree we exist in. I think that was just very commonplace. There's one other thing that um, I know y- you guys have thought long and hard about the idea that perhaps Wyman didn't even really design the building. About three years ago, the son of Paul McKelvey, Terry McKelvey's son, found the blueprints, a collection of most of the blueprints for the bribery in the basement during his seismic retrofit. And a few years ago, accessioned them to the Huntington Library with our help. And the blueprints are signed by George Wyman as the architect. So that's, that's, I believe, a canonical answer to the question of who the architect of the Bradbury building is. You're referring to is, is John Crandall, and he 
he uh, he's done a lot of research on this, and this sort of comes to the public forefront in a 2000 Los Angeles Times column that Cecilia Rasmussen publishes. She's the now and then columnist uh, digging deep into the Los Angeles Times History Center archive. She decides to write about the Bradbury, and she goes to John Crandall and gets all this information he has. He he basically says, you can't prove that George Wyman was the architect of the Bradbury building. And you can't prove that Sumner Hunt was either. John Crandall goes back to the Esther McCoy article in 53 and the Wyman daughters. Yeah. So, so when John Crandall is doing his work on downtown Los Angeles, which is really interesting and important work, he starts to find some uh, inconsistencies in the narrative of the architect of the Bradbury building. And he is revisiting the Los Angeles Public Library at a time when it's just coming back online after the Great Fire. And a lot of um, books have actually been lost and others have had to go into a a vacuum chamber down at Downey at the space plant in order to have water sucked out so that they can be preserved. And there's just a lot going on in terms of being able to do research into L.A. history in downtown. But when he speaks to Cecilia Rasmussen on May 21st, 2000 is when the article is published. He tells her that uh, there's no evidence in print that George Wyman ever was employed by Sumner Hunt. He calls out the March 1892 edition of the Illustrated Herald of Los Angeles, which includes Hunt's perspective rendering of what will become the Bradbury Building and mentions that there will be a 45 by 120 foot interior court, which is the architectural feature that is most distinguished in the building. He notes that in the 1896 edition of the book Los Angeles of Today Architecturally, there's a credit for design of the building that goes to Sumner Hunt. But he says when he goes to the L.A. Public Library, the page that includes this credit is missing. It's been removed. Mm. He wants to know who removed it and why. John Crandall finds these inconsistencies and he wants to make something of it. And what he ultimately determines is that the 1953 article by Esther McCoy in Arts and Architecture, for which her source was Wyman's Daughters, is where all of this mythology around the construction of the Bradbury Building comes from. Wow. Which is true. I mean, no one had ever talked about a, a Ouija board or a dead brother in the press. That was not the story that Wyman <laughs> told about his work to the media at the time that the media was reporting on him. This is a family story. And it's obviously one that really stuck with them because 1953, it's almost 60 years later, and it's still very vibrant. And when Esther McCoy goes to them, She's a wonderful writer and a great researcher, and she really cares. She wants to understand why this building is so special. And they tell her what they understood as little girls watching their father take this amazing commission that he would be famous for for the rest of his life and, and for their lives. And that all these years, 60 years later, someone would seek them out and want to know about it. And they talk about Mark giving the message to move forward. To John Crandall... This is a story that is too good to be true. And specifically because the older daughter, Carrie's son, Forrest J. Ackerman, becomes this great dealer in science fiction stories, this agent who is boyhood friends with Ray Bradbury, no relation. Although many people assume that Ray Bradbury has something to do with the Bradbury building just because they're both so unlikely. John Crandall thinks that for some reason, the Wyman family bam 
bamboozled Esther McCoy. Esther McCoy was credulous enough to print this cockamamie tale. This cockamamie tale spread because it was so wacky, it was better than the truth. And this article ends, sometimes when the myth is more engaging than history, charm trumps reality. And and so we have the blueprints accessioned to the Huntington with Wyman's signature on the blueprints. So I, I just don't know how to answer the question any more completely. When the building was new, it was reported upon. George Wyman was acclaimed for his work. He was considered to be an architect who had done something absolutely extraordinary for Southern California. And in fact, uh, this is 1895 in the Los Angeles Herald, which, which is digitized now, thanks to the National Archives. In his design and construction of the Bradbury Building, he performed a great service to the city. The building is not only beautiful, but also unique. It is the pride of the whole city. Now, I, Love it. I assure you, they would not say that George Wyman had done this work in 1895, had he not done this work <laughs> in 1893. Sumner Hunt would not sit down with him and be the vice president to the Southern California chapter of the AIA in order to get architects licensed in California, had George Wyman come along and stolen his credit for this wonderful commission. It's a project that came along. Simona Bradbury needed a lot of attention. George Wyman obviously loved working closely with clients, and an agreement was made with the help of a dead brother who helped push it along a little bit. It gives it a little sprinkling of pixie dust, which is what you want in Southern California. You certainly want a building to have a story. And this is the story of the Bradbury. Thanks for listening to Clever Confidential. To see images and more, please head to cleverpodcast.com to read the show notes. We hope you'll join us for our next episode featuring the twisted tale of Frank Lloyd Wright and the Axe Murders at Taliesin East. Thank you to Kim Cooper and Richard Shave of Esoturic for lending their expertise and insight. Please check out their webinars about all things mysterious in the great city of Los Angeles. And when in LA, be sure to take one of their bus tours. You won't regret it. Thank you to Camille Stennis for editing and audio wizardry. And thank you to Thin White Rope and Frontier Records for our theme music, Astronomy, from their album In a Spanish Cave. As always, let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.